0: Let me pray again for just a second as we get started. Uh, the Scoggins were up, by the way, on the screen earlier, so I'll pray for them too. Lord, thanks for Rich and Gladys and their children in Bolivia. Lord, uh, thanks for the, uh, the things this church has helped them with in the past, the chapel they have for the kids and moms that come, uh, Lord, numerous uh, especially little ones and adults that have come to Christ through their ministry there over the years. We we thank you for them and ask that you would continue to bless them there. Father, we rely on your spirit to make truth real to us. Help us to seek you and your glory this morning as we look at the passage in 2 Corinthians. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a lot in the short passage we're in this morning, and so I am doing away with uh, fuzzy introductory stories, and uh, we won't have much in the way of illustrations throughout either. This is not the way you like to teach, you like to keep things memorable and maybe a little lighter than this, Uh, but we'll be in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 11 through 19, winding down through 2 Corinthians, this will be our third to last message. If you've got your Bible or the study sheet, go ahead and turn right now to 2 Corinthians 12, 11 through 19. If you've been here in the past, you know where we've been with this. If you haven't, uh, Paul has been sort of wrestling with his friends in Corinth through this whole letter because though he was the apostle and though the church had come to an existence there through his preaching, yet he had been rejected for some, what folks he called pseudo-apostles or false apostles, some guys that had come in as interlopers, and they basically said we don't know about this Paul but we're the real deal you should follow us And we've learned from Paul earlier he said not only are they not super apostles which is what they claim but they are indeed em- emissaries of Satan himself so he's still trying to win back the Corinthians to his apostleship because he wants to bless them that's the bottom line and he's winding down as we pick up this morning at verse 11 He's winding down what he called the fool's speech. you remember, he had sort of reduced himself against his better judgment to comparing himself to those pseudo-apostles. And he sort of turned the tables, though. Those guys have been bragging about all their qualifications. Paul reduced himself to bragging, but he ended up bragging about his weaknesses because he said that's when Christ's strength came out. That's when it was manifest. So 2 Corinthians 12, 11 through 19, Paul says, uh, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches except that I myself... Did not become a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong, he says sarcastically. Here for this third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? but be that as it may I did not burden you myself nevertheless crafty fellow that I am I took you in by deceit certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you have I I urged Titus to go and I sent the brother with him Titus did not take any advantage of you did he did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps all this time you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you, actually it is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved." If you remember back uh, months ago, earlier this summer, uh, Paul sort of compared himself, I think the teaching title that week was called E-Harmony and the Gospel, but Paul was sort of like a jilted date. He'd taken his date to the dance and they left him and they were dancing with other guys. those were the pseudo-apostles, and it was sort of like this amorous relationship he'd had, which he's trying to restore. Here, this morning, he compares his relationship with the Corinthians to that of a parent. And it's for the same reason. He's still trying to win them back, because if they follow the pseudo-apostles, they're not going to go where God wants them. They're not going to be blessed the way God wants them to be blessed. They're not going to grow up into Christ-likeness the way God wants them to. So Paul, not because it's to his benefit, but because it's to their benefit, he's still pursuing them in this comparison. Now he says, I'm like a parent. The Corinthians are like embarrassed kids. I don't know if this plays out this way today or not, but when I was growing up, you know, uh, my dad's better than your dad, you know, and that means my dad's bigger, stronger, smarter, makes more money or something. And the Corinthians are feeling like Paul does not look very paternal compared to Johnny or Jimmy's dad, because the pseudo-apostles, if you remember, they speak well. They're articulate. They brought letters of commendation from someone that, that gave them an appearance of official status and standing. And so it's against their model that Paul's preaching and comparing himself to. And now he brings up the mantle of parent. Now, because Paul's metaphor here is of a parent it assumes certain things about parenting in general and so I love it the reason there's so much to go through this morning is because this passage speaks both to leaders in church and those in the church under them and to parents and to the kids under them as well his parenting model about leadership presumes much about parenting in general and so as we work our way through we'll speak both to how this applies to parenting in general parents with their children, and then also, more specific to what Paul's addressing, leaders in the church and those in the church. Before we get there, uh, one thing to cover here, proofs of apostleship, hopefully you've got a study sheet you can follow along there. This is not from the passage, but Paul, before he gets into this parenting model, he reminds them, I really am an apostle, I'm really Christ's commissioned servant to you. A couple of passages that may not be on your study sheet and are not in this passage, But back in Paul's first letter in chapter 4, verse 15, uh, Paul there had said, If you were to have countless tutors in Christ, you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Back in that first letter, there's already friction there. And he says, guys, even if you have many teachers, and they did, even if you have many mentors or teachers in the future, there's only one person from whom you initially derived your faith. You heard the gospel and you believed, and he said, that was me. I was your spiritual mentor, your spiritual father, in the sense that your faith came from my ministry, from my preaching, 1 Corinthians. He had also said, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2 and 3, uh, those guys, the pseudo-apostles, come in with letters of commendation. and, And Paul says, guys, we don't need letters to you, and we don't need letters from you. Because you yourselves, in your faith in Christ, you are our letter. You're known and read by all men. So you guys are thinking about commendation letters for us. You're it. We are an apostle. Your faith is evidence. He also says, though, here in our passage at verse 11 and 12, he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you. And the signs of the true apostle, he says, were signs wonders and miracles or works of power may be another translation you may or may not have now in neither of the epistles he writes to them and if you read in acts paul's time in corinth it does not record what any of those miraculous attesting signs were they're not there paul brings this up though because they had been done and they know it and he knows it so we don't know what they did in corinth the text simply don't say we know if you go through Acts, you can see a list of the miraculous signs Paul did. So for instance, just a few, uh, in Elimus, the magician in Salamis in Acts 13, 11, a guy who could see, this is sort of going against the signs of the Apostle generally, you know, the Messiah comes to give sight to the blind. Well, in Elimus' case, Paul cursed him and gave blindness to the seeing. That was one of his miracles. In Acts 14.10, the man in Lystra, he made the lame man walk. He delivered the demonic from oppression in Acts 16.18, the fortune-telling girl, if you remember there in Philippi. He healed the sick, he cast out demons. You know, really remarkable story in Acts 19. There it said, people just took cloths away from Paul. And the cloths taken to people who were sick, they were healed because Paul's apostleship and the last one, uh, raise the dead back to life. Paul was preaching. You know if you tell a guy you can preach for 30 minutes, you know how long they take, Steve? An hour. If you say you've got 45 minutes, they take two hours or whatever. So Paul's preaching through the night, and Eutychus, the young guy, falls out the window. Falls asleep, falls out the window and dies. Paul raises him back to life. So there's signs, there's wonders, and there's these works of power. And Paul says, guys, I really am the real thing. One, because your faith comes from my preaching, reiterated, but also signs, miraculous attesting signs to my claims, to my verbal claims. Now it is interesting, if you read in the Gospels, Jesus said there would be those who would stand before him and say, Lord, we've we've performed signs and wonders in your name. And Jesus would say, depart from me, I never knew you. You know, that, that somehow there will be people in history, either past or in the future, who will display miraculous signs and powers but these guys opposing Paul they don't make any such claims which is interesting they've got a lot of talk but there's not power behind them there's not apostolic power they're performing no signs or wonders so first Paul says I'm the real deal I've done what apostles do I've done these miraculous signs of power that attest to my words now we're gonna hang our hat on point two on your handout, Parenting as Paul's leadership model. That's in verses 13 through 19. There's five parental qualities we'll look at here this morning. You know, when people teach there's always lists. There's three, there's five, there's six, there's seven. This is not magic. This is not the beginning of what the Bible says about parenting or church leadership. It's not the end of what the scriptures teach about parenting or church leadership, certainly. But as Paul compares himself to a parent for their sake, he brings up five qualities of parenting that he applies to himself in church leadership. So we're going to look at those. And a couple caveats before we look at these five. The first is this. Paul's model of parenting that he's talking about here has to do with a parent to small children. A parent to small children. This is insulting at one level to the Corinthians, right? Because he's comparing them to non-grown-up, to immature young children on one hand. But on the other hand, he is not speaking against things he says elsewhere. For instance, in 1 Timothy 5, he talks about Christians, adult Christians, supporting their elderly parents financially. He's not talking about Jesus' words in the Gospels when Jesus took the commandment to honor your father and your mother, and he applied it to finances and said, you should honor your aging parents in your adult years financially, you should help take care of them. He's not addressing those things. So when Paul says point A, we'll look at here in just a second, talks about finances, he's not speaking against Jesus' words in the gospels or his own words elsewhere. The picture he's painting is an adult parent to a young non-adult child. The second thing too is this, Jesus said in Matthew 23, when he's looking at the Jewish leaders of his day, you remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those Jewish leaders, they were all about what was in leadership for them. And you remember Jesus tells the followers of his day, don't do what they do, don't follow them what they do. Do what they say when they point out the law, the covenant you live under, but don't do what they do. Because they wanted the respectful greetings. They wanted financial support. They wanted to use those people under their charge. And Jesus said, in that context, call no man father, your spiritual father. Call no man teacher or leader, your spiritual teacher or leader. And Paul here is calling himself their spiritual father. And I think it's the sense that he's capitulating to their carnality and their immaturity. He's not trying to speak against what Jesus had said earlier, but he's trying to use another metaphor so that they'll simply buy in to his apostleship so they'll listen to him so they can be blessed. But just as Paul had been driven to boast, he said foolishly, brag on himself so that they'd listen to him. In that same sense, he's reduced to comparing himself to a spiritual father over them, not just a mentor. My own preference in the church in the arena of leadership R.A. is uh, older brothers. Uh, This was Francis Schaeffer's uh, take, and it's my take too. You know that in the church, there's older siblings that that give younger siblings the benefit of their years or experience or prayer or whatever in discipleship. But Paul reduces himself to this uh, model of parenting because he's reduced to it by the Corinthians' immaturity. So the first point there, A, on your, your handout... Paul the parent does not take financial advantage. And if you guys remember, finances have come up throughout this whole epistle. And Paul hammers on it here. So he says six times in these verses, he has not past tense, he is not currently, and he will not future tense, take advantage of them financially. Verse 13, I wasn't a burden to you, past tense. I won't be a burden to you, future. Verse 14. Verse 14, also children aren't responsible to save for parents, parents for children. Verse 15, I will gladly spend and be spent for your sake. I'm not only not getting finances from you, I'm pouring myself out for your benefit. Verse 16, I didn't burden you myself. And verses 17 and 18, none of those I sent to you took advantage of you financially. Titus or the others that Paul has sent along as well. Now, probably two reasons why Paul hammers so much on this in the way of finances. And the first is this. The Corinthians were really carnal. And their minds were just like the minds of the folks around them in their culture. They, their minds had not been transformed. They would not been renewed in the truth of the scriptures for sure. So they thought like the culture around them. And the culture around them was wealthy like our culture is. We've talked about this before. And they thought, you know what, to get the best folks, you've got you to gotta pay the best price. And so the pseudo-apostles had come in and they were charging exorbitant fees to speak to the Corinthian church. And Paul refuses to. And I assume it's for this, and if you go back into the opening three chapters of First Corinthians, you see this. Paul said, when we came to you guys, we did nothing except proclaim Christ and Him crucified. And it appears that Paul was concerned that if he received financial support from this group, they would think, they would mistakenly conclude that something God was providing for them free, the gospel, salvation, through the Father's cost, God the Father's cost, through Christ, could somehow be paid for, could somehow be purchased. And so Paul from this group never receives any financial support. Now we've mentioned before also Paul is supported financially by other groups, but never by the Corinthians. They're carnal and he didn't want them to mistake the message of the gospel. It's free, you can't buy it. Nothing you can do merits the gospel or the salvation Paul had talked about. The second reason he brings up finances so much is that he's apparently being accused by the pseudo apostles of really taking unfair advantage of them financially not because they're paying in up front but if you remember back in chapters 8 and 9 the churches in Macedonia they took a collection and the church in Corinth is going to finish taking a collection and there's going to be a lot of money in a pot someplace soon and some apparently are accusing Paul he's not receiving funds from you up front. That's because he's pilfering them from the collection you're giving. He says it's for the saints in Jerusalem, the Christians, the needy Christians in Jerusalem. Don't believe him. He's into that fund, even if he's not being paid by you up front. So Paul again is addressing that. And back in chapter 9, if you remember, he'd said, we've got all these safeties in place over the use of these funds. We've got multiple trusted men that you know and trusted men that the Macedonians know, they're going to oversee the the completion of the collection and they're going to go with those funds to Jerusalem to make sure they're disposed of just the way we told you they would be. So he hammers on finances because this was a big deal to the Corinthian church. Paul says, I understand that my role towards you is a provider and a giver, It's not for you to subsidize me and my lifestyle. I'm going to take care of you. Like a father, I'm providing for you. Now, if you're a parent, and I think most parents in the United States and and in this area, and I'm sure in this church, I don't think most parents have any problem saying to themselves now, I understand that my role to my small children is not to make a dime off of them, not to send them out to work in the streets or the byways or whatever, so that they support me. But no, I understand that I'm to be a provider and a giver and I'm to provide for their funds, their upbringing. I think we are on the flip side on this. On the finances, I think we tend to err on the side that we actually are not acting in our children's best interest as they grow older. So that we subsidize adult grown children when they shouldn't be subsidized any longer. You know, so for instance, lots of Christian parents subsidize their kids as long as they're in college. And if it's four years or six, or eight, they're just on the dole. They're on the family dole as long as they're in school. Or some adult children live in parents' households and yet don't contribute to the family needs. Uh, You know, I don't think that makes sense. Parents are supposed to move their children towards independence, towards autonomy in appropriate ways, respectful ways, certainly. And that's, I think, the side we tend to err on here, not the side of not providing for our children. Then the arena of the church also uh, Peter talked about this, and Peter is an in, has an interesting perspective, I think, on finances, both in this passage in 1 Peter 5. But do you remember in Acts, the story of Acts, when Peter and John go down to Samaria and they pray that those who trusted Christ will receive the Holy Spirit? And they do pray, and they do get the Holy Spirit. And Simon comes up and he says, Would you let me give you a sum of money so that I can get that same gift? can i buy the ability to give the holy spirit to other people and you remember what peter says may your silver perish with you that you thought you could buy the gift of god so peter's fairly emotional about this about what do i get what am i giving and what do people think about god and how this whole thing works so later in his life when he's addressing fellow elders and shepherds in the church just like himself he says first peter 5 verse 2 Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, not because you feel you have to, but voluntarily according to God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not because you're going to make a buck, but because you really want to serve the church. So Peter says to fellow rulers and elders and shepherds in the church, he says, Guys, you can't be in it for the money. Now, Peter was supported by the churches. We know that from 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, hey, Peter takes along a believing wife and they're supported. There's not a problem with that. It was just in the case of the Corinthians that he brought this up. But Peter says, you can't be in it for the money. If that's what your motivation is, it's going to be severely lacking. Now, you know today in our culture, if you are a leader over a megachurch, if you're a well-known publisher, if a Christian publisher, if you speak at lots of conferences and sell lots, lots of books, there's a lot of money to be made in the Christian market. In fact, if you look at the amounts made by well-known ministries in the United States, it's staggering. It's, it's tens of millions of dollars, you know, a, a name, a well-known name can bring in. And I think there's a... Uh, there's a whole lot of house cleaning, I'm sure, that needs to be done in this arena. But I wouldn't even presume to judge that I know the motives of everybody involved in that. People who are involved, Christians who are involved in selling books and speaking at conferences and help lead large churches, I wouldn't even try and judge their motives. But if you take away the respectful greetings, if you take away the big houses and the six-figure salaries, would they still be serving? I think that's where Peter's coming at. If you're supported by the church, he says, that's fine. But are you in it only for the money? If you are, it's not a motivation that's going to carry you down the road. So be careful. So parents provide for their children, Paul says. The children don't provide for the parents. The second point on parenting Paul brings up, Paul the parent doesn't seek personal enrichment from his wards. Now, this could apply to money, but it can certainly apply a lot more broadly than that also. Verse 14 there again says, I don't seek yours... I don't seek what I can get from you. I don't seek what you can enrich my life with. But I seek you or your welfare. And there in the last verse, verse 19, which is a key verse in the epistle, by the way. He says, I'm not so much defending myself to you. I'm trying to build you up to help you grow more fully into the new person in Christ God means you to be. Paul here is a lot like the father in Proverbs. You know, if you read those opening chapter of Proverbs, the dad, as each chapter opens, he's trying to win his son's heart. And he keeps saying, Son, listen to me. Son, heed my word. Son, buy into what I'm telling you. And it's not so that the dad can feel better about himself. He's telling Junior, If you'll trust me, if you'll believe what I say to you, you'll be blessed. You'll avoid all kinds of trouble in life. God will be free to bless you if you'll trust me and if you'll believe me and if you'll act on my words. And that's the kind of parenting you see Paul doing here. Guys, I want your trust because I want you to be able to be blessed. I've known parents, maybe you have too, I've known parents who wanted children because they believed it would somehow complete their life. I've known single gals who wanted to get pregnant because they just thought a child would somehow help them. It would make them feel more adult. It would would do something for them. Well, that's parenting backwards. See, I'm, I'm bringing a child into the world so that I get something from that child. So that child means something to me because I'm getting something from them. And it's the wrong way around. Paul says, I don't want what you can give me. I want you. I want your heart because I want to be able to bless you. So as parents, as we're looking at our kids, are we looking at them that somehow they're subsidizing our emotional life or our sense of success or purpose? Children are a gift from the Lord. And you are blessed as parents when you have kids. It's great. It's fun. God means us to feel blessed in that. But the motivation, do we see them as as, uh, objects that are somehow going to enrich our lives? You know, sometimes you'll know parents who they live vicariously through their children. You know, they want their children to succeed. They hope they're good-looking and popular and successful because to the degree that they are, the parent feels, I'm successful. I point to my children. Well, again, it's the wrong motivation. Paul says, I don't want what you can give me. I want you. I want your heart. I want you to be blessed. Leaders in the church can often do the same thing. Paul does say in 1 Timothy 3 about deacons, he says they they obtain a good reputation. They've proven themselves faithful over a period of time. They obtain this good standing in the church, this good reputation. And I don't mean that none of that happens. But boy, if you've participated in church leadership, if you've gone in with the thought that you're going to receive all these warm fuzzies, that you'll feel better about yourself, because you're recognized as a leader in the church, boy, I'll tell you, that will not take you very far down the road. I talked, I talked to an old friend yesterday. He'd been a senior pastor, planted a church in California 25, 26 years ago, and he retired. And he says, you know, life is so different now. No one's mad at me. <clears throat> no one's mad at me because I don't have to say the hard things to people. I'm I'm retired. I go in, I have friendships with people, etc. He says, nobody's mad at me anymore. He says, life is so different. I'm like a normal person to other people. And I knew what he was talking about. If you go into church leadership with the thought that you'll feel better about yourself from it because you'll somehow gain some new standing of respect from others, boy, that just does not work. You you will be sorely, sorely disappointed. I've I've been in church leadership in one way or another for at least 25 years, and it does not work that way you take the heat that's the way that works the third element Paul says there about parenting Paul the parent models God's unconditional love and by the way this letter this second Corinthians letter <clears throat> this is a letter I didn't even want to teach through I just felt like God said I want you to teach this letter Paul's letter his apologetics through this whole thing It's almost embarrassing to me. I say to myself, can I really do what Paul does? Because these people, they don't like him. They don't respect him. They're not thankful for anything he's done for them. And you know what? He just keeps loving them. It's staggering. It is absolutely staggering. And that's one of the things he brings up here. Paul's unconditional love. He says in verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls if I love you more... And you know who they're giving their affection to? Their papa, their daddy, it's the pseudo apostles, it's guys who don't love them, don't care about them, haven't blessed them, used and abused them. They love those guys. And Paul's like, you love them? We. This is the way I've lived towards you, but you love them, but you don't love me? And he says, be that as it may. I'm, I'm going to keep going on, loving you the way I have. Be that as it may. You don't respect me, you don't love me, you don't say thank you. You know, like kids who don't give a rip about their parents, you don't he says, Be that as it may, I'm still gonna love you. And in fact, in verse nineteen, he concludes this section by saying, I'm doing all this for your upbuilding, my beloved, my loved ones, the ones I love and care about. Doing it all for you. Paul loves them regardless of their short term response. His spiritual children have been thankless, and he's continued to serve them anyway. You know, if you're a parent, I hope this never happens to you, that you never have this dynamic, but it is possible. It is possible. You know, God's a perfect parent, right? And he has thankless children all the time. None in this room, I'm sure. But you know there are some thankless children of God the Father. I don't think that's a reflection on his parenting, But you know, you may find a child one day that says to you, I hate you. I wish I'd never been born into this family. I don't want to be like you. Rebellious kids, thankless kids who just say, not feeling the love mom and dad, don't want to be here. Don't want to be a part of this family. Wish I had other parents. How do you respond? What do you do? Do you say, hit the road? Do you quit praying for them? Do you call the curses of heaven down upon them? You know, what do you what do? You do? What, what attitude do you take? Paul says, as a parent, no matter what you've done, no matter how you've, you've responded to me, I'm going to continue to love you in Christ's name. I'm going to continue, and I'm calling you my loved ones. I mean, this is, this is biblical love. This is Hosea kind of love. This is Jesus kind of love. That no matter how badly they treat me, no matter how much they reject me, I'm still seeking their best. This is life-changing. You know, you and I on our own, we can't get here. That's God's kind of love. That's that's God's kind of love for sure. If you're a church leader, and again, in in church leadership, and, and I would say we've been so blessed in this church. We've had so few difficult things to take care of. And the church I'd come from, two churches last I've come from, just, you know what? If you were in leadership, you know what it meant? You just dealt with all the trouble. That was what you did. You dealt with all the trouble. Uh, that was your role. Church discipline, wh- whose marriage is falling apart, you know, whose life is going down the pits. That was your role. If you were in leadership, it was just to deal with, with trouble. And there's been blessedly little of that in Lion and Lamb, for which I'm really thankful for. But if you're in church leadership you've got to have some thick skin and you've got to be willing to say no matter who left, no matter who's mad at me in Christ's name I'm called to love those here and to seek their best and whether you're a parent of small children or a leader in the church that doesn't mean I give people what they want it doesn't mean I capitulate to my children's demands it means I continue to seek what I know God says is in their best interest but Paul serves as a parental model he says unconditional love Uh, d this would be the fourth one paul the parent has christ's patience you see that in verse 12 he says i'm i'm exercising the signs of an apostle among you with all perseverance with all perseverance that means steadfastness constancy endurance i just keep going and going and going you know you know as a parent if you don't have perseverance and patience you just want to throw the towel in You know, as your kids get older, as they're taking on their own ability to think and reason, you know, the challenges grow even more. Can I be patient? Can I hang in there? Whether you're a parent of children or you're a leader in the church, to have the long view of that discipleship is a requirement. Short term, all kinds of things can happen that aren't necessarily good. You've got to have a long term view. You've got to be willing to be patient. And sometimes that just means enduring. It just means... I'm not thrown in the towel. Short-term you may feel like there's no success, there's only failure. Short-term that's okay. You're parenting and you're leading for eternity ultimately. So you got to be willing to work through the short-term problems and have patience and endurance and sort of outlast the opposition sometimes in that way. The last one, the fifth point, Paul the parent relies on godly wisdom. You see that in verse 16. He says, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in. And crafty there means skillful. This would be sort of like proverbial wisdom, proverbial skill. That is, I know how to live life successfully. Thank you. Um, Paul treats the Corinthians differently than he did the other groups. He does not treat them like the Philippians or the Ephesians or the Thessalonians. He's shrewd. You know, he never took a dime from them because he knew them. How carnal they were. So he adjusted what he was doing to their persona and to their needs, their motives, their outlooks. He was shrewd. And he says, I take you. I took you in, crafty fellow. This is tongue-in-cheek on one hand, but he means it on the other. I adapted what I said, how I said it, for your benefit. Now, whether you're parenting or sharing the gospel or in church leadership... There's some things that are just basic, obviously. The Scripture, the truth. For kids, we call them to obedience and respect. You know, those kinds of things. I'm not saying Paul negotiated on those. But where he had leeway, he changed either what he was doing or how he was doing it. I'm startled sometimes by parents who will tell you something like, spankings don't work or I've tried everything and I just don't know what to do and it's as if I've got this limited repertoire of options and I've exercised them and I'm done, I'm just, I've lost. Junior's gonna do it his way. And I'm thinking, you know, get with it. Be shrewd, be wise, be crafty, be skillful. I tip my hat to the parents who buy the games that Junior loves because it becomes a point of leverage. So they tell Junior, listen bud, do your chores, get this stuff done, and you've got X amount of time. Aaron, this would never happen in your household, I'm sure. You have X amount of time on your favorite game. But should you not comply with the things you're supposed to do, we're taking that game away. I'm thinking they get it. Those parents understand. They're being wise. They're being shrewd. They're taking into account what their children value. Our compliant girls sometimes were less than compliant. And so I would just tell them, gals, in the battle of the wills, you will never win. And I told them, I will stay up late at night to figure out how to make you miserable until you decide it's not worth it. I just wanted them to know, get over it. You're not going to win. Not going to happen. And I'll be as creative and shrewd and skillful as I, I can figure out prayerfully how to be, because there's too much at stake for me to let you get away with it or think, you know, you're going to pull the wool over and keep rolling. No, not going to happen. So I, I love the uh, the Marine. It's not an official... Apologies to the Army personnel. Non-official Marine. Uh, improvise. How does it go, Matt? Adapt and overcome. Guys, this is what parents and church leaders should be saying. Improvise. Adapt. Adapt and overcome failure is not an option in parenting or church leadership what does it take just ask yourself what does it take and get creative and be shrewd and think skillfully what's my objective christ-like maturity for my kids and those in the church what does that require i don't know yet i'm going to think about it and i'm going to come back with something failure is not an option parenting or church leadership One of the things I think leaders can do, by the way, uh, concede, James says uh, wisdom from above as meek, among other things, power under control. You know, if you're a church leader, if you're someone in authority, when you concede wherever you can, whenever you can, it lets people know when you put your foot down it's because you really have to, because you're compelled to, not because you simply have to have things your way. That's one of the ways leaders can be shrewd and wise. If I'm free to to say yes, I say yes. If I'm free to concede, I'll concede. And there's going to be times when I can't. And so you'll know. I'm not just trying to get my way. There's some non-negotiables here. Let me wind down and just sum up. If you're a parent or a leader in the church, if you don't see your motivations and outlook bearing some resemblance to these five qualities Paul brings up, remember, this is church leadership, but it's based on a model of parenting church leaders or parents if we don't have these kinds of motivations in our leadership we're probably blowing it they're deficient and remember Paul is offering himself throughout this epistle as Christ's representative and Christ is his model the suffering servant Messiah Jesus is Paul's model throughout this letter Paul boasts in his weakness in chapter 10 you remember so the power of God can be manifest through him The Messiah that we serve, Paul said, was the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. He's not the one in Zechariah 14 that has come back to the Mount of Olives in power yet. So the Messiah we serve, he's the suffering servant. And that's what Paul has displayed. Faithfulness in suffering. Kids, if you're at home uh, living under your parents' household, uh, don't fail to understand that God has given you your parents to bless you even if it doesn't seem like it in some given moment in time. Your parents, the household God's put you in, that's God's benevolent grace to you because God loves you and He's got you in the family and under the parents that He knows can bless you. And so even if it seems at times that you're not feeling love from your parents, that's a given. As someone in a local church whether it's this church or any other um, i would sure encourage you to pray for those in leadership to pray for those in leadership Uh, you know if you're a parent especially of small children you have a number of carrots and a number of sticks by which you can bring some kind of compelling motivation to your kids you know to get in line toe the line do the right thing you can't change hearts necessarily but you've got some carrots and some sticks you know, in church leadership, very few carrots, very few sticks. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. You're dealing with adults who have their own opinion. They've got their way of doing things. We live in a very independent age, in a very independent country. Do you know in leadership here, if, if you, even in the, the matter of church discipline, you know what people do? They just go to the next church. Right? <laughs> we were talking about this yesterday, last night. You just go to the next church. In church leadership, it requires so much wisdom, so much of Christ-like and Pauline-type of leadership motivations, It's tough to figure out what will help this person or this group at this time, what will help get them down the road. It's a challenge for sure. Very few sticks and very few carrots for sure in church leadership. And in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, it says, uh, leaders in the church keep watch over people's souls as those who will give an account to Christ anybody in local church leadership uh, gives account to the head shepherd what'd you do you know with my sheep what'd you do in my house that's a big deal you know pray for those in leadership let me close with this mark twain famous atheist of course by the way atheist unless he converted in the last moment of his life mark twain said this when i was a boy of 14 my father was so ignorant i could hardly stand to be around the old man by the time I reached 21, I was amazed to see how much the old man had learned in seven years. You know, I uh, hope he was a great guy. I hope he was a godly guy. Uh, we don't want to have Mark Twain's view of our parents or those in the church in positions of authority. We want to have the, the seasoned, mature view maybe of Twain of how much the old guy had learned. Father, thanks that you are the ultimate role model for us in parenting and leadership, Lord, in submission also. Father God, you are the end of all authority, and yet, Lord Jesus, you also submitted yourself to the depths of submission in your death on the cross for us, not only coming down in our humanity, but dying for us also. Father, would you help us, any of us in leadership and in parenting roles, to emulate your perfect fatherhood, your perfect leadership. And Lord Jesus, as those under authority in the church or in our homes, would you help us to emulate your perfect submission. And Father, through our churches and through our families, might the world around us truly see your goodness and your benevolence. Might they truly be drawn to you because of the life they see in us. In Jesus' name, amen.